Brothers and sisters and friends of the truth, the subject that we have selected to uh, treat with this morning is uh, found in the fourth chapter of Ephesians in the 14th verse, and its recording at that point was uh, done by the Apostle Paul to the uh, Ecclesia at Ephesus. and. It is a very simple and straightforward uh, point that he wished to make with them, uh, that they should not remain in an uh, undeveloped or infantile stage of spiritual development, but that they should uh, go on to stronger meat, as it's sometimes called in the scriptures, and be a stable person, one who is well-founded and well-grounded in what he believes, uh, as opposed to being carried about with every wind of doctrine. That is, we accept one thing today and then something comes along tomorrow that's a little better, a little different, and we grasp that and we fly from place to place with our uh, varied opinions or theories. Uh, and our foundation, I suppose we could say, uh, is very weak. The word doctrine, as it is used in the scriptures, is very simple. We don't have to be uh, too profound to uh, define it as merely teaching. But one mistake that we, uh, as a group, are perhaps uh, somewhat guilty of is that we, when we think of doctrine, we think in terms of uh, definable positions regarding uh, absolute matters. That is, in, in regard to there being one God as opposed to a multitude of gods or uh, the being of this God or some of his attributes. And we are inclined, again as a group, to omit the standard of walk that is involved in doctrine. Now, each of these has its place and should have its place with each one of us uh, as we develop our thinking. Fundamental beliefs. Yes, they're very important. Fundamental standard of behavior and walk and conduct, yes, equally important. So we do not want to be uh, accused of saying that we're so interested in the definition of who God is and what his purpose is that we omit the equally important standard of excellence that his followers are supposed to attain in the uh, individual conscience and individual performance as a servant of deity. Uh, if you will refer to your concordance, and if you would follow this in a very simple way, which I have done here today, uh, you would find that there are basically two words that are translated doctrine throughout the uh, New Testament. Uh, one of them speaks of teaching, and, and uh, I'm referring to Young's concordance, and it has in parentheses the substance, teaching the substance which would seem to indicate more uh, of what we would call fundamental uh, doctrines or, or beliefs as to uh, what we call statement of faith as opposed to walk. And the other one is teaching the act, which is the verb, perhaps, usage, although this is a, as a noun as it's used, but the fact that I have engaged in the act of teaching something uh, means the promulgation of, of doctrine or the act of promulgating it. Uh, and so it is used in these two ways uh, primarily throughout the New Testament. Uh, 
a question perhaps as old as uh, even antedating the Christadelphians is, does it make a difference what we believed? Now, there, there have been lectures given on this subject, and uh, I think the answer is so self-evident that uh, certainly we're not going to belabor it here today. Uh, I would answer that question by saying that as long as we make some uh, even half-hearted endeavor to attend meetings and to keep up our Christadelphian front, if I can put it that way, certainly there is some interest on our part in what is being taught or by the Christadelphians uh, with whom we associate. Uh, maybe sooner or later we're going to reject that teaching, or maybe sooner or later we're going to accept it. Uh, and then maybe sooner or later we're going to ride along with that belief half-heartedly, or maybe we're going to become so involved in it that it becomes our whole way of life. Does it make a difference? Uh, a verse that is quite often used uh, to answer this question is uh, in the uh, eighth chapter of Acts, where it speaks of the people who, uh, to whom Philip was preaching. And it says, And when they believed Philip, teaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Well, the logical conclusion we have here is that there was a set of teachings or doctrines that Philip administered to this group of people, and when they believed them, they acted. So if it made no difference, they could have acted beforehand or not have acted. Uh, but it seems that from the uh, account we have here that they believed these teachings and they responded. Another verse that we hear uh, quoted often, perhaps not in, in reference uh, to the same subject matter that we're treating with here today, is in the uh, John 17:3, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. The emphasis we would like to place on knowing the true God. If it makes no difference that we know him or that there is any knowledge necessary by any of us, uh, we're sort of wasting our time in trying to ascertain it. So I think we all would readily concur with, with, with a very small smattering of information from the Bible that it is set out in an effort to instruct man that there is a teaching here that it is imperative that man grasp. As Christadelphians, we would like to take a look at another question. And this is, do we place too much emphasis on doctrine as opposed to conduct? In other words, separating this teaching, as we tried to do in our uh, first remarks, uh, and in our minds, I think most of us do this, we think of, of, of doctrines in the sense of one God, Christ in his proper position, the kingdom of God on earth, and other things like this, and then conduct. How should we walk? How should we behave ourselves? How should we remain separate from the world? How should we uh, comport ourselves with our uh, society and so forth? And we, we look at these things perhaps very separately a great deal of the time. Uh, do you think, as, as a question that I would put to this audience today, that we place too much emphasis on doctrine as a whole and too little emphasis 
upon our conduct. Or perhaps maybe we're guilty of not merging these two into their proper perspective. Uh, rather than answer this question, we thought we would defer and perhaps the uh, light of scriptural testimony that we will bring to bear on this later uh, will help generate a, a, a satisfactory answer uh, to us. Another question I would like to pose at the uh, outset of my remarks is what inner conviction is involved in full belief? If we go back to the time of Philip in the 8th chapter of Acts and this group of people that he was addressing said they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. It says when they believed it, they responded by being baptized. Uh, in our own case, uh, we again would reiterate that question. What inner conviction actually is involved? What takes place in the person? We're not... Uh, speaking primarily or only of baptism, but we're speaking of being convinced today and tomorrow and the next day and throughout life, is our overall acceptance of Bible teaching capable of bringing forth or generating in the individual some type of overall posture? We think that there is a principle in, in the Scriptures uh, and I guess we can say accept it as criticism or not, depending on, on how you uh, accept it, uh, that many people, many of us in the truth for a number of years, perhaps either relegate it uh, to semi-importance or we fail to grasp it in the first place. And that is the real overall direction of the scriptural testimony. Man makes the mistake, it, it is, I'm not sure of the writing, uh, it either is in one of uh, the prefaces, it's in the Dr. Thomas's Faith in the Last Days, or else in the book by Sister Lassius on Yahweh Elohim, where it says, uh, and of course I'm quoting somewhat uh, liberally, that the primary or full purpose of God is not the salvation of man, or not in the salvation of man but it is in the manifestation of deity in men. And too many times, I think a lot of us have heard and may have made the statement ourselves as, as not necessarily young people, but as we endeavor to mature, we say, well, if there's just something I can do to get in the kingdom, get me in there, uh, something personal about this thing, that if I can be saved, this is my sole purpose in life. And we think that we are missing the point with this limited view of the matter, that not too many of us say, if there's just something I can do to drink in this teaching from the Scriptures and bring forth, in some measure, honor to God, that the salvation aspect is secondary and certainly will come in its due time. I think we put the uh, emphasis, perhaps, on the personal ambition or the personal interest, and we fail to see the beauty and it is a great deal more beautiful, the thought that the honor or manifestation of God is the ultimate in this whole picture. This is the purpose of his teaching, is to draw attention to himself and to his plan. It's not to magnify man. It's not to tell him that you're so important that God can't operate without you. But it is calling attention solely and primarily to the purpose and intent 
of deity in the long run. And one final question in our uh, opening remarks that we think you will do well to reflect upon, and that is, in this particular day in which we live, in 1974, and it's not, it is not something that's just come about this year or last year necessarily, but it, like many uh, conditions in the world and in society, it, uh, it happens, it grows, it develops. And we ask this question, is there any significance to the de-emphasis of doctrine by all the churches of Christendom? We, we have enough graybeards in the crowd here today to know that uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago that you could go out and get a good argument from a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a Methodist or some church of the uh, general grouping of Christendom that he believed so-and-so, that you went to heaven because such-and-such such was the case or you went to hell because something else was the case. But today they say it's all a matter of conjecture. It's, uh, you know, if you want to believe it or take it or leave it. Uh, we find in the churches today very truly, I think if we're uh, assessing their values, that it's half of these things are optional. And in Christendom there is a de-emphasis of doctrine. We find in the Catholic Church, they used to have certain rituals that they would not defer come anything. But today, with the pressure of the people in their congregations, they say, well, we better allow this. We better make it all right, in some cases, to have divorce or to have separation or to have this or have that or to not eat meat on Friday. But used to be, draw the line, this is our belief, we're going to stand by it. The Section A question of that is, if, if society or if Christendom has de-emphasized the importance of doctrine, is there any danger uh, of this attitude uh, sinking over uh, into our group of people? Sort of for the lack of uh, uh, <laughs> lack of uh, something uh, I was thinking when I wanted to prepare these remarks uh, that the subject matter, of course, was, was going to be revolve, revolving around the area of doctrine and its importance to us and how we look at it and so forth. And uh, I thought of uh, placing on the screen here uh, several words which might uh, give to us a sort of a choice. What will we have? in terms of doctrine, but it, uh, you know, in, in reviewing the, this thought, I thought it perhaps sounded a little uh, splashy or something, but uh, again, I'll, I'll use the wording here, at least part of them, uh, that there, and went through the dictionary sort of, looking under the word D, or the letter D, or, or the prefix D-E. Most of us know that, that D-E means subtracted from, taken from, or, or uh, negative, basically from, uh, de-emphasis I've just used. So do uh, there's a number of words, decadence, de-emphasis. I even ran across this word which was new to me because I was just scanning down the dictionary, of dehortation as opposed to exhortation. So we exhort each other to stand by these teachings or to hear these teachings. Of course, the 
idea of dehortation would be to don't listen to them or to neglect them or to de-emphasize them. But there's a lot of words that uh, uh, are very negative in our approach uh, to doctrinal significance and importance. Uh, delusion, desolation, deterioration, things along this line. Is this what we want with our doctrine? Do we want the change? Is it necessary to have change? What about the doctrines that the apostles taught in the first century? Do they need improvement upon? Do they need changing? Do they need modification? Do they need updating? Or are they the sound principal teachings of Jesus Christ and the apostles who walked in his footsteps? I have a few... Uh, uh, I had several pages, in fact, of... Uh, of these notes that I was going to throw on the screen here. Uh, maybe for your benefit it turned out to be two. Of course, you could, uh, you could get this just as easily turning to your Bibles, but if, if there are some here who do not have Bibles, uh, we've quoted the uh, Scripture in its entirety here. All of these have to do with, with doctrine. They raise a, a question, as most verses should, should do. We want to examine them and raise these questions. Uh, it is not necessary to argue and to fight uh, over this matter, but in solving a, a problem or arriving at a decision or a conviction, uh, there is an inner change that must take place uh, in the person uh, daily, a re-examination, a review of these things uh, that helps him in his uh, doctrinal position. In Matthew uh, 15, Christ speaks to the Pharisees, Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines, the commandments of men. The sole comment that we might make on that verse is it seems that, that this particular group of people to whom Christ addressed his remarks uh, had some defects about them, to say the least. Uh, there was either a lack of depth, a lack of comprehension, a lack of farsightedness as to what God intended in this overall program. They were substituting other items for scripture teaching. Uh, if we ever become guilty of this, there should be somebody who has read it, who has studied it, who has absorbed these teachings that can say to us, uh, you know, your doctrines uh, savor of the commandments of men, or they're not just what the scripture teaches. And again, this does not have to be done in any way in which we're uh, combative about it. The fourth chapter of Ephesians that we referred to in our, as part of our title, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Again, we see a weak or defective position uh, in people uh, at Ephesus or possibly here that he is urging these people not to be this way. He's not really saying that they are necessarily, but there is a danger or a hazard that we can be carried about. If we'll get our feet on the ground, Paul says, we don't need to be worried about being drifting around from one idea to another. The gospel 
is a definitive proposition. The same yesterday, today, and forever. The gospel has not changed and will not change. So once we get our teeth into it, we don't need to be worried about being carried about with some other isms and, and ideas. First Timothy, the first chapter, uh, we quoted a, a, great, uh, a great deal of this, uh, uh, about eight verses or nine. As I besought thee, this is Paul writing to Timothy, to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Again, we see the hazard that Paul saw, that, that there perhaps were people uh, through some reason, which we may not care to define at this point, uh, that were teaching another doctrine. Neither give heed to fables and endless, endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith. So do. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understand neither, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. Now, there's a couple of uh, items there that uh, we think are worthy of comment on, and not, not that it's limited to this. Uh, maybe we can underline them here. At these, these two items here, the end of the commandment is charity. Now, this goes back to our, the statement we made at the beginning. We don't want to uh, be accused of saying that doctrine is just a list of statements. The end of the commandment is charity, or love, as, as the better translation has it, out of a pure heart. Whereas we can say that we have good, sound, wholesome doctrine when it can be said of us that this man is inspired as a result of having this doctrine to be charitable, to bring forth a comprehensive man of charity. And the second part that we underline, and, and you notice all of the uh, characteristics that it mentions there, of which the law is capable of uh, dealing with or correcting. Uh, reproving or whatever it's going to do, it is for some people who are fairly uh, bad in their behavior, uh, ungodly, sinners, lawless, disobedient, unholy, profane, murderers, and, and this type, that the teaching or doctrines of the Scripture will correct or improve this type of conduct. So that when we talk of legality, we're talking of legal conduct, proper behavior, sound doctrine and sound behavior. They go hand in hand. And the Apostle Paul, we feel, spent a great deal of worthwhile time in bringing this point to us, 
uh, in his writing to Timothy. Now that the last uh, verse we have on this page is 1 Timothy 4, 6. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. So there's an obligation. You know, we can't say, well, I've, I've read this thing, and it makes sense to me. I, I believe it. I'm going to conduct myself according to its basic precepts, and I'm going to sit down over here in the corner and, and lavish upon myself all of this uh, information that I've attained. Uh, Paul says here that there's an obligation, not only to Timothy, we feel that it has application uh, to all of us, to put the brethren in remembrance of these things. And perhaps we've been guilty in many respects of speaking on the basics, the first principles, the fundamentals, the foundation upon which higher things uh, must be constructed. Thou shalt be a good minister, or we could insert the word here, I think, servant. We're a good servant to Christ if we put our brethren in remembrance of these things. Now, we don't have to be speaking in public to put them in remembrance uh, of, of these things. We have private conversations. We have other means of contact. We have other means of communicating uh, to each other that there are some important things involved in this overall picture of life and that we have an obligation one and all, to remind each other, to re remember and to be absorbed uh, in these words of faith and of good doctrine. We have several other quotations here. In uh, 1 Timothy 4.13, put very simply, Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. There's not much we can say to improve upon that. It seems that one of the uh, points that I would get in reading this verse is that there is no uh, point or no status that we reach in life whereby we can say that, well, we understand it. We, you know, we've got the doctrine. I've, I've heard these principles all my life. You know, I knew them when I was uh, in Sunday school, and I sort of... Uh, solidified my thinking maybe as a, as a young person. And, uh, you know, I, I know those first principles. I know the doctrines of Christ. I know what the Christadelphians teach. So, you know, don't come at me with some more of this, there's one God and that Christ is his son and there's all these other things. I know all of that. Well, such is not the case, uh, not only from this verse, uh, but from many uh, exhortations from the Scripture. Uh, we need to call attention in our own uh, areas in our own persons that these are true. There's something beautiful when we say there is one God. We're not trying to make it out to be some unfathomable subject either. But when we think of the oneness of God, there's a great deal of, of contemplation and time that can be spent profitably upon thinking or meditating or considering the uh, depth and riches and beauty of deity are of the intricacies with which his son was uh, designed in his mind in the beginning and, and the uh, overall procedure of this plan. It's, uh, we might say it's, it's so deep and so beautiful that most of us, or all of us, cannot reach its full uh, beauty and attainment, but it's something we can feed upon and give attendance to 
uh, at all times. Uh, there is no stopping point. There does not come a time in our lives when we can say, well, I used to go to Sunday school, but that's for the children or for the young people that are learning these things, and now, you know, I've kind of graduated and got my degree, and I don't need to go anymore. Uh, that's not true. If we lose our uh, attendance to Sunday school or our attendance to reading or our attendance to these things, our doctrinal grasp goes downhill. In 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul continues in the same chapter, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Again, there is, it's not just a selfish thing. Uh, in doing one, we do the other. If we save ourselves and we're able to present this same idea to those around us, uh, we save both ourselves and those that hear us. And again, we, we answer our question perhaps subtly here. Uh, does it make a difference what we believe? Well, from the writings of Paul to Timothy, he says, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. So if there's any strength in his talk, he's saying something to us. Why should we take heed to doctrine? For the obvious reasons of saving ourselves and those that are around us, uh, modified by what I said earlier, if we're interested in the glory of God as our first and primary objective. 1 Timothy 6.3, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. So again, it's the same idea is that these words of the Lord Jesus, they are the gospel, they are the doctrine, they are the behavioral standard, and they are the doctrine that we want to grasp hold of and hold on to. Second Timothy 3.10, But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience. Now Paul didn't say anything about my belief in the one God or my belief in the establishment of the kingdom on the earth, but thou hast fully known my doctrine, my manner of life. Do you think that the manner of life of the Apostle Paul demonstrated that he hoped for the establishment of that kingdom? I most certainly do, and I most certainly do in the case of you or I or the people we are around, that if somebody knows our manner of life, they know that we're looking for better days on this earth. They're looking for the literal return of Christ, that we're not looking for some change of our belief where we'll adopt a new idea next year that say, well, God's going to solve it somehow, but we don't know how. The manner of life reflects the belief in the fundamentals and our adherence or patterning of our life in a faithful, long-suffering, charitable, patient manner. That's what Paul says here. Thou hast fully known my doctrine. Uh, maybe departing a little bit from this uh, reading of these things, a thought comes to my mind. Uh, people have approached Christadelphians and they say, uh, well, what do you believe? Well, we don't start out as a general procedure by saying, well, we believe we should be uh, nice to our neighbors. This is really not what they're looking for anyway. Or we believe we should, you know, behave ourselves and not rob and steal banks and go through the uh, uh, depravities of society. Well, of course, we do believe this, but this is not what they're looking for, and it's really not the answer that we're giving them. But we have heard people... And we criticize this approach 
of saying, well, we don't believe in heaven, we don't believe in hell, we don't believe in the devil, and a lot of don't. Well, first of all, I believe in heaven, and I believe in hell, and I believe in the devil. But I don't believe in the devil of Christendom, and I don't believe in the heaven of Christendom or the hell of Christendom. But the Bible is full of hell, it's full of heaven, and it's full of the devil. But we're defining our reading the wholesome words that the apostle and that Christ has given us. And we would like to say to a person, well, certainly we believe in a devil or a devil principle that God speak of this and that it is such and such. Uh, in the course of time, perhaps he says, well, this devil that I'd always been taught to believe uh, maybe doesn't make so much sense in the course of time. Or this idea of, of going off to heaven that, or, or to hell as the alternative uh, raises a few questions with me when you tell me something about the kingdom of God being here on earth and, and that uh, certain of these things are going to uh, transpire and come into being. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's one of our fundamental uh, principles, by the way. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Now note the four uh, benefits uh, that Scripture can give to us. And again, does it say that we're only talking of one God, the kingdom on earth, no uh, personal devil, and no universal resurrection? No, it, it suggests that, but among other things, it's possible for reproving. We find a person out here mixing with the world, and we say, look, the doctrine or teaching of the Scriptures suggests that you're in a, in a very hazardous position there. You're, you're mingling with the enemy, and, and pretty soon you're going to surrender to him. For correction, reproof, they, they have a great deal of kindred meaning, I think. For instruction in righteousness, you don't know what to do. The Scriptures will tell you. The scriptures will tell you doctrinally, here is the way to walk. You believe certain principles, you walk in a certain obedience to commandments, and you are a doctrinally sound person. 2 Timothy 4, 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Experience taught the Apostle Paul this. Uh, unfortunately, and, and certainly we're not trying to, to pinpoint uh, Anybody, maybe, maybe ourselves would be the best uh, uh, suggestion that we direct this to. I hope it's not the case with me, and, I, and I, I'm sure you hope it's not with you, that the time ever comes that I will not endure sound doctrine. But of a total of, of 100% of the people, Paul is saying here that the time is going to come when the other pressures and influences that either Christendom or society or, or they themselves uh, come at are going to tear them down. They don't have that sound doctrine that supports them. They will not endure it. But after their own lust, they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Now, of course, Paul is talking here primarily of believers. I think we perhaps have seen a, a very literal fulfillment in the uh, Christendom about us, that uh, a common plaint that, that uh, Christendom cries is they go to church on Sunday, and they don't like what that minister says. You know, he, he's talking too much Watergate, he's talking too much this, talking too much that, too much social problems. Of course, I don't think they want to hear kingdom of God on earth and too much of the Apostle Paul or the Law of Moses or these things. They don't know what they want to hear, probably, is the truth of the matter. 
but they're, they would like a better teacher, a better minister, somebody that, that soothes them and makes them comfortable in their meeting, that gives them some prestige or a place to go that they can be proud of. Well, I think that if we want to be proud of anything, that our pride will be in the things most surely believed among us. Now, I can't believe those things for you, and you can't believe them for me. But let us hope that the time will not come that we as individuals, or we as a group, will not endure sound teaching. In Titus, and incidentally, this, the book of Titus, I think, is, uh, in its entirety, bears very strongly upon uh, this subject area. I've selected two, a couple of passages here. Speaking of a bishop or a worker in the ecclesia, I think we could put him in this category. A bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. So all of these qualities that we see in this person who is moved by sound doctrine basically are exemplified in proper conduct. He's a hospitable person, or she, as the case may be here, a lover of good people. They, these things inspire them. When we see the holiness that the Scriptures call upon us uh, to exhibit, and we see this in other people, it helps us. Just, holy, temperate, all of these qualities are, are manifestations of good, sound doctrine. They're not inspired wholly by the fact that you know a few passages that say certain promises were made to David and that of the fruit of his loins Christ would be raised up and he's going to sit on his throne. You're all wet about your going to heaven, but we know the kingdom of God's on earth, and that's the end of my doctrine. This is not the case. In the second chapter of Titus, verses 9 and 10, exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things. We all are servants in, in our uh, worldly positions, perhaps. Be obedient unto your own masters to please them well in all things not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. We would like for people around us, and this is not to make us feel good in the sense of that we've accomplished something, but again, we would like to call attention to the one that we're serving, to his purpose in the earth, to someone else, that this is what's inspiring us. This is the teaching that we have absorbed from cover to cover of this Bible, and that we would like to present it or direct it uh, to others who might uh, rejoice with us in the same things. We have several other uh, scriptural passages which we've, uh, uh, you know, we could give you, we could throw them on the screen. We, we had, we had a, uh, some little uh, thought that maybe some of you that go along and take notes could uh, could jot these down and look them up at your own uh, convenience. But our time is moving along, and we're going to skip on to another point, another part uh, of the thoughts that we have here. 
this was done, I, and again, I'm very apologetic. I typed these notes up and put them on the uh, plastic that goes on here, and I, I ran out of a ribbon on the typewriter and went from a black to a blue, and the blue won't show through here very clearly, and I made the copies, and they, uh, they disappeared. <laughs> so uh, I can't uh, flash them on there, but uh, we do have the capability of, of jotting some of these things down here. And I know as a, as a young person, uh, this was very helpful to me, and there may be either young or old here today uh, that it might have some impact on, and I'm going to take the time uh, to write down the what, what I would call, and I think that I'm not uh, unique in, in suggesting this, the six cardinal principles of Christendom. And again, I do this with tongue-in-cheek because I'm talking of Christendom 20 or 30 years ago. Today, it's sort of you toss the coin and whichever way it comes up, that may be the doctrine they've got today. But, but basically, they all fall under uh, one point here. Can you read that all right? Uh, now, now, it used to be that these six doctrines that you could count on finding them in most any church you'd go into. Uh, the immortality of the soul. I haven't written them on here the same way I've got them on my notes, but uh, uh, we can refer to them this way. Heaven going in the sense that we mean a literal ascension of the soul into the regions of, of heaven, wherever that might be, as the abode of the righteous. Hell as the opposite. And, and as those of us in our fundamental approach to this have often done, we, we recognize that whoever invented heaven had to invent hell as an alternative or he, his proposition was going to fall flat. Uh, because you know when you've got good people, the very next question is, well, what are we going to do with these bad ones? So we've got these theories of immortality of the soul, heaven going, hell going, the personal devil. If you've got a hell, you've got to have somebody to look after it. Theories of immortality of the soul, heaven going, hell going. The personal devil, if you've got a hell, you've got to have somebody to look after it, uh, and universal resurrection, and the doctrine of the Trinity. The one that is not written on there, and perhaps is equally as important, is what I have called vague morality limits. That's the doctrine of Christendom. Do what you want to. Uh, don't make an issue out of it. Don't bring it into our church and say that every man must behave like I do. Uh, you're your own boss. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that each church says that we have no standards whatsoever, but there is a vague, undefinable position in the great majority of Christendom. Uh, there is no thou shalt not do this. This is restrictive. You can't do that, and you should do this and should do something else. Uh, aggressive and prosperous in spiritual ways. Now, the, the true scriptural doctrines, as we all know, are, are the very opposite of each one of these things. I think if we could, uh, you know, I, I can't think of anything more opposite of immortal than mortal. If anything is, is permanent and lasting, such as immortality, uh, the word infers, something decaying and, and uh, wasting away and, and of no value uh, is, is a far opposite as you can get. Well, the Scripture says that man is mortal, that he's perishing, that he's headed in that direction. 
and that if you want to believe the doctrines of the Bible, you've got to come to grips sooner or later with the fact that there is a non-inherent immortality of the soul principle, and that man is inherently mortal, and that really the coming of the person to God is a great deal for this reason. We say, in effect, God, we're helpless, we're dying. If you have a program whereby we can get around this or something better, we'd like to hear of it. So the Bible tells us. In reference to the uh, heaven-going aspect, we, we know that the Scriptures teach us, and we're passing, we realize very rapidly on this, that the earth is the promised abode of the righteous. That God has said that the earth abideth forever, that Christ will return, that he will set up a kingdom on this earth, that we have various features that are described, geographic, something very concrete and geographic, and nothing elusive like streets of gold and, and we don't know quite what it's like, we know it's, it's pleasant and, and imaginary and all this other stuff, uh, an invention of man. But the scriptures are very solid and very, very explicit in telling these things, and we don't have to be smart to recognize them. We have to abandon our preconceived ideas and our idea that we may be smart in order to accept them. But it's really one of the simplest statements in the world to, to recognize that man is mortal, that God has reserved the earth and appointed it to glorify his name here in a multitude headed by Christ. Uh, these are so simple and so simply taught throughout the scriptures, not in just a hidden point here and there, but throughout, interwoven very clearly and often, that they are our scriptural teaching. Hell, we read of as the grave, the cessation of being, state of unconsciousness. Uh, Christ was a resident of hell for three days, we read. Uh, many things about hell that would help us to understand that these theories of Christendom have no water at all to feed us. The uh, devil being the personified principle of sin in the flesh, Christ came to over, overturn or destroy the devil, and he has done the work in its primary form. form. He will complete it upon his return and the uh, final uh, demolishing of sin in its entirety. Uh, so that principle uh, exists in man today. It's available. It's around. It's walking among us as it's personified. Uh, but we know that this personal devil that uh, the church invented many years ago uh, has no reality in the scripture. And the scriptures speak of the limited resurrection as opposed to, opposed to universal resurrection. In Daniel 12:2, we read that many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. We really need no other verse to assure us that resurrection is limited. If the Bible says all men that sleep in the dust of the earth will be raised, then we would believe it. But the scriptures, and logically so, say that many that sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting shame and contempt. And again, the one that we left off the page, again, perhaps the most important, a scriptural doctrine, the implementation of a holy life, circumspect conduct, fearing lest we do wrong, desirous of defining right and doing it. That's a doctrine. Circumspect conduct, fearing lest we do wrong. If none of us have that fear, then we've got a little doctrine to learn.
we ask uh, Brother Lawrence, who has uh, the publications available, to bring uh, copies of the Statement of Faith. And the reason we did that, we wanted to ask the question, is does every Christadelphian, uh, and we could expand this to those young people who are, are interested in these things, prospective Christadelphians, do you have a copy of your statement of faith? Now, we're not here to sell books, and uh, probably any books that we do have, uh, they are sold at no profit anyway. And, and many times uh, people contribute their funds to help reduce the prices on these things. Uh, for a number of years, I carried mine in my, in my Bible in the back. Some people don't like to carry a lot of packages because they sort of break up the bindings and what have you here. I find it a very helpful tool. And it's not because I'm trying to be nationalistic and, and that I want to say, here's my statement of faith and somebody else's is different and uh, we want to fight as much as we can and argue and, and carry on. Uh, but these are the doctrines that I believe. And it's not because they're from a certain year or from a certain writing, or anything, but the things that I have examined in here tell it as the Bible tells it. The first proposition, I'd hate to count the references, but, but this is Bible. And the reason I say that is there's been a great deal of criticism directed to the statement of faith and words something like this. We don't need a statement of faith. That's man's work. I'm going to use the Bible. Well, this is using the Bible. This first one that tells us, and it's condensing some of the words, that the, that the only true God is a certain being defined here in the Bible. It gives conservatively 25 proofs that you can turn to. Now, if this disagrees with the Bible, I'm, I would be the first one to say, throw it away. But there's no disagreement here. It defines what I believe as a believer of the Bible. And if you don't have a statement of faith, I would like to see that you do have one. And there may be 75 copies out on the table out here. And they're, uh, with the cost of inflation, I think these used to be 8 or 10 cents, but they're a quarter now. Uh, I'd like for you to buy one. If you don't, I'll pay for it. So if you want to help yourself and take one uh, and don't have one, be sure and get one. And not just to have some bulk to add to your Bible, but refer to this thing. I refer to it because uh, I need it. I wonder in the proof of something once in a while, I say, uh, how is that worded? I mean, if we say that Christ was of the condemned race of Adam, is, is that the exact wording in there? Or is that the proper way that we perhaps ought to put it? Uh, we might word it a little differently in our own uh, uh, description of this thing. But these are basic fundamental, and you will, you will notice in the back part of this uh, statement of faith that we have here the commandments of Christ. Love your enemies. Resist not evil. These are doctrines forming the basis of our fellowship or our belief, and we believe them. We should believe them. So get your copy of Statement of Faith and Brother Lawrence. You figure up how many are gone and how many are not paid for, and I'll pay for anybody that wants one uh, and, and doesn't want to pay for it. I, another question I have jotted down here is, do you feel the need 
for this is less than it was 10, 15, 30 years ago. Has the time come when we are sort of walking encyclopedias on this thing and we don't need a definition? Uh, we don't need a sort of a, a statement that says there is one God and that Christ is his son and that the kingdom is proposed on certain basis. Uh, I think the need is more. I think the need is more because the pressures of Christendom and society and all the things around us tend to drive these things out of our minds. They tend to reduce their importance in our overall perspective. So I think we need this, the basic foundation fundamentals, more now than we needed it ten years ago. The important thing we'd like to emphasize is if you believe it, practice it. Some of the propositions in this statement of faith, or maybe we could put this in the form of a question, do you think or are you aware of any of the propositions in this statement of faith that are under attack, not from Christendom, brothers and sisters, not from Christendom or some outside skeptic or agnostic, but from within the household? Is there a brother sitting here or there in my ecclesia or in my area that says, I'm not so sure that Christ was the Son of God, or I'm not so sure that the Bible is wholly inspired. I need a little more evidence. Or I've been reading this fellow in the New York Times that said he had some things that he unearthed that indicate that, you know, such and such is the case. If these propositions are under attack, let us assure ourselves that we believe them. There's no need for change. There's no need for updating or modification. There's need for solidifying our confidence, our faith, our conviction in these things so that we will be able to stand. Yes, but we here want love overcome all these things. The very first commandment we read in our statement of faith, love your enemy. And I think if we'd read further down the statement of faith, it says do good to all men. We don't have to just pick on our enemies and say this is the only group of people we're going to love. But won't this proposition that's espoused by the Jesus freaks and all of the occult movement today and all this uh, radical society about us, as well as so-called civilized Christendom, won't this great principle suffice as a statement of faith or suffice as a conviction or definition of our doctrines? Well, we've got an answer to that. If it is the love of God and the interest in honoring his name, the answer is yes. That will overcome. If it's the love of man, if it's to peacefully coexist without regard to what God says in his Bible, no. The answer is no. So love will do the job. The end of all things we just read is charity. The end of the commandment. If we absorb that commandment, ultimately it says your response to believing that God is acting, that Christ is coming, that he's going to set this kingdom up, that there are some perspective participants in that kingdom, in this group, the end of that commandment is charity or love or a response from you to honor that name, to tell somebody else God is great, that what he's spoken means something. It's not to tell that person, look, you be comfortable, you, you take it easy, you have a nice feeling. This will not get the job done. And we think that scripturally speaking, those are the principles. 
God's name above all things. In the Lord's Prayer, when he teaches us to pray, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's the first concern of man. Not give us this day, not take care of our personal needs or things like that. Hallowed be thy name. If that's first, it generates the love of God and the love of man takes its place in its proper perspective. We, we had a saying, not a saying, but a, a uh, statement, I guess we call it, uh, that we've thought upon for a number of years, and we think it bears repetition. Uh, I don't know if it's original, it's not that important anyway. That good doctrine will beget good conduct. If my doctrine is sound, and I, I'm sort of delineating now in, in the uh, what we call the basics, one God, Jesus Christ, coming King, and, and all this doctrinal type thing. If, if I'm firm and, and got my feet on the ground with regard to those things, there's going to be something about that that says to me, well, if you believe this kingdom so uh, energetically, what are you doing about it? What kind of response is it getting from me? It's going to get a good response if I believe it. If I don't believe it or if I half-heartedly believe it, my response is going to be half-hearted. But the antithesis, good conduct, will not in itself beget good or proper doctrine. So I can go out here and I can feel sorry for a man because I see him languishing in his uh, religious idolatry or something, and I, I say, well, you know, I, I like that man a whole lot. He, he, I just, I feel sorry for him. I, I love him. Uh, I'd like to see him do well and, and get along fine. Uh, but where is the honor to God? Where is the recognition that his name will be hallowed in the earth, that it will be developed in his son that he has sponsored and sent to this earth as his representative? If he has no knowledge of this, he cannot honor God. And if we have no basic developing knowledge of this, we cannot honor God. So no matter how our personal feelings come into the thing, good conduct, I can be the nicest guy in town, but my doctrine is not complete. It, it will not do the job. But if I'll get hold of this Bible, if I'll get hold of and examine that statement of faith, if that's my uh, primary uh, goal in attaining uh, what good doctrine is, will say to me in the course of time, you better behave yourself, you better walk in a way that is acceptable if you hope to have any total part in this uh, overall picture. Christadelphians have failed to have good conduct. I have failed to have good conduct, which says, in effect, there's something faulty not with the doctrine as it's written down in 1, 2, 3, and 4, but in my total adherence to it. Now, this doesn't mean if I go out and I get angry with somebody and I spout off that I suddenly denounce that there's one God or that Jesus Christ was his son. I'm, I'm not uh, discounting those doctrines, but I am minimizing their importance. I'm saying, in effect, that God, even though you are one and that, the, that you are the source of all power and energy and strength and being and wisdom and direction, that somehow I'm taking things into my own hand and I'm doing it a little bit different than you are. So I'm saying, in effect, that that doctrine is not 100% my guide. Because if I respected the omniscience and the omnipotence of God and his uncreate being, 
I'm going to walk circumspectly. I'm going to do my best, and even when I fall, I'm going to try to struggle back and say it is because of my conviction in this list of things and my complete uh, absorbing in them that I'm going to direct my energies of walk in that direction. But we, we did want to make mention, and not, uh, not from a, what we call a totally critical viewpoint. You know, criticism is, is a, uh, it's a healthy thing. We don't always accept it as such. And in fact, I think if we looked at the strict definition uh, of being critical, you know, we, we say a scientist critically examines some microscopic, uh, point or something, and he, and he analyzes this, well, the word critically there means that he is just uh, uh, very strongly and uh, dedicatingly looking at that uh, amoeba or plant or whatever he is examining under the microscope. So critical from that standpoint means uh, good. So we want to be critical or critically examine uh, this Bible. We want to critically examine ourselves. And in, a fact, in fact, when we see something wrong there, we want to say to ourselves, I see something wrong there that needs changing. And I would like to suggest that you make this change. Uh, the Apostle Paul, many of the words that we read in our earlier show on the screen there, were to this effect. Put the brethren in remembrance. Tell them to hold on to the sound right. Don't let them depart from the faith. There will be grievous wolves springing up. Watch out for them. Now, this doesn't mean, again, that we have to say, here's a brother over here, you better watch him. You know, we can't trust anybody in here. They're all wolves. They're going to spring up and devour the flock. Not in that light. Self, uh, having committed no sin or something, did not need to offer for himself. And when I or you or somebody else comes up with some idea like this, you say, doesn't have a good ring. That's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures say Christ, born of the stock of Adam, died, suffered, needed to die, brought again from the dead by his own blood, raised to power, sits at the right hand of God as our mediator, coming again, and all these facts that we know about him. So don't detour us off. Don't detour yourself off with some fancy, invented idea that there's going to be a change or that there needs to be a change. There have been suggestions that Christ was not under condemnation, that he was not estranged or not like the Adamic family. Not true. There's been clean flesh ideas that none of Adam's posterity inherit any condemnation. That, that we're born into the world. Adam, that's his own problem. We're born, in, born into a world, and at the point that we start committing sin, then we've said to God, I'm separated from you. The point of separation is Romans 5.12 tells us, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, Christ, you, I, all of us, in whom all have sinned. That is the Bible teaching. That's what you'll read if you turn to page so-and-so of your statement of faith. Probably that Romans 5.12 is in there four or five times, proving different propositions. We've heard, you know, these things, some of them don't bother us today. We've heard that Christ descended from Joseph, that Joseph was the actual father of Christ and not God. We've heard that Christ's sacrifice was optional. These are from Christadelphia, people that get fancy ideas, or they want to be a little different, or maybe they want somebody's told them, we need a teacher. We want, we want somebody that will teach us, that will, you know, we've got itching ears. 
Give us something pretty. Give us something different. Give us something more like the churches around us. We've heard of no personal sin before baptism. We've heard of baptism for personal sins only. We've heard of baptism for Adamic condemnation only. Maybe if we get the two of those together, we've got something closer to the truth. We've heard that Adam was not the first of created beings in this order of things, that there were people that came before Adam. The fallacy of that, of course, is that if we do, we've probably got some that bypassed Adam and didn't have this principle of sin, and if we can marry into that stock, maybe, we're free of sin. Scripture is not totally inspired. Adam was created mortal. That that thought has come up time. Current possession of the Holy Spirit. Christ has already returned. We heard this three or four years ago coming out of this country. Christ is in the earth today. Don't you believe it? Immortal emergency and emergency. (laughs) Immortal emergence. And again, probably the item on our list that we should have put down here at the very last. Conformity to this world. There is a Christadelphian departure that many are guilty of. Repent, Yum Stanton. Repent, every one of us, if we are conforming to this world. That may be worse than, than some variation or slight variation our misunderstanding, if, if, that, if we can minimize it to this point, of where I don't quite see the total picture or sacrifice of Christ in all of its intricacy, but I'm so absorbed and bent and moved in the direction of the world, they can say there is a denier of the faith of the worst sort. He claims he believes in one God. He claims he thinks that Jesus Christ is coming back to judge the dead and to set up a kingdom, but he's living like this world is the only thing around us, and he's got to absorb as much of it as he can. That fellow has departed. He's, he's overthrown and made shipwreck of the faith, of the doctrines, of the teachings of the Bible. There, there is an article, I'll, I'll read this in closing, and I don't, I don't know that, it's, uh, that the impact uh, is that great, but it was written in 1898, and the brethren, as most of us know, uh, in England had undergone a violent wrenching in the ecclesias as a, as a result of controversy. And this brother sending in an ecclesial news item uh, sent it in, in in these words. This brother sending in an ecclesial news item uh, sent it in in, in, in these words. Uh, Brother so-and-so reports a change of meeting place. We now meet, he says, at the United Friendly Society's Dispensary Hall, Parramatta Road, Petersham, a suburb adjoining Leichhardt. The recent controversy on justification and amenability, while it shows up the sad deficiency of knowledge within the household on the righteousness of God in Christ, and resurrection through the blood of Christ for those only who are sprinkled by the same, and he puts in parentheses, not literally, of course, has nevertheless resulted in our ecclesia, as in many others, doubtless, in our giving more diligence to the examination of these subjects. And consequently, we have become more established in the more intricate points of the truth. From the truth standard, We know that our warfare, within the body as well as without, 
is against want of knowledge. Had the brethren been as well versed in the deep things concerning the name as they are in the more simple things of the kingdom, we should never have heard such teaching within the household as of justification from the Adamic condemnation being a process requiring the physical death of the believer or of the resurrection to condemnation through Christ's blood of Gentiles out of Christ. The point that he makes, and we think that is, that it is well taken, is that we, we're not going to relive the 1898 problem, but do we have that lack of knowledge? Is it wanting within us as individuals? Is the conviction of our faith based on a drinking in of the teachings, overall conduct, law, order, the whole business? If it is not, there's only one time to get busy on it, and that is now. We'd just like to close with the, with the thought that, uh, and it's a reiteration of what we said in the uh, first paragraph, that our doctrine is made up, agreed, of a list of statements. The conformity to the world and to society about us definitely is perhaps one of the weakest angles about us as a group. That, you know, we make a lot of, uh, I don't want to call it pretense in the full sense of, of uh, condemning everybody, but we, we make much to do over our list of doctrines and sometimes our attitudes and behaviors uh, as a total show that, that those things aren't truly and genuinely working within us. And my exhortation to you today is that if we can work in this direction, if the words that we have brought to you uh, help any in that direction, that I, I hope that they uh, are taken such. Thank you very much.